Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Exvoyant, the one-on-one sales improvement platform that's transforming how high-growth sales leaders use Salesforce around the world. Create one-on-ones your reps will thank you for and use Exvoyant to help your sales managers create unique plans for every rep on your team. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we've got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we are joined by a killer sales leader. Jason McElhone is the founder and CEO of Remote Sales. Remote Sales provides lead generation and account management services for medium-sized companies. Their sales leadership has 65 years combined experiences, driving north of $300 million in revenue. Jason has helped build and deploy sales teams of all sizes to some of the world's most iconic companies. For the last 12 years, he's helped build lead gen operations delivering over 2,500 SQLs and $250 million in revenue growth with teams worldwide. Jason is a fantastic sales leader. Seriously, I love talking and hanging out with this dude. He's developed a large, large following and is growing fast. His understanding of the connection between the personal life and the professional life is something I think every sales leader needs to learn, and we will for sure uh, talk about that today. He always brings the heat. I am pumped to have him today, if you can't tell from my voice. Jason, my man, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Rob, it's a huge pleasure to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Okay. I, uh, I have been with you a few times. We have... We have killed a lot of hours together. This 45 minutes is going to go fast, dude, because you always bring it. This is going to be fun. Why don't we start the party by you updating everyone about what you're doing, what you're doing at remote sales, remote online. Uh, get everybody up to speed with that, and then we'll dive in. Awesome. Just to give everybody a quick background, um, I spent 14 years on Wall Street as a stockbroker. Smiling and dialing 300 uh, Dun and Bradstreet cards every day. I made an absolute fortune, most of that in South Florida, a town called Delray Beach. Uh, then something called the crash of 2007 and 8 came along. I had a massive leverage portfolio that was way too early in calling the crash. I had a ton of what's called index put options. They expired about six months before the big meltdown. And I basically had a run on the bank where I lost my house, my cars, my boat, my fiance, my self-esteem, and my dignity. And, Rob, I ended up on a forklift in Georgia making nine bucks an hour. Holy cow. So I was at that factory. It was about 100 degrees. My father was with me. He's since passed about a year ago. And it was a good six to nine months. I appreciate that. A good six to nine months of absolute humble pie, where I had to shed every ounce of ego that I'd built up over the last 10 or 15 years. I had to look in the mirror as a man, and I still remember doing it in the bathroom at the factory where I said, you know what, dude, it was all you. It wasn't the market. It wasn't your boss. It wasn't your colleagues. It was all you. You got over leveraged. You got too full of yourself, and you were wrong. 
and you paid the ultimate price. And now it's time to own up to your mistake and get on with your life. And about 30 days after that moment, I landed at a place called Market Source where I spent 12 years uh, building out the inside slash lead gen team. And as you mentioned, when I left on March the 1st, we had qualified, and it's always a team effort, at least 2,500 sales qualified leads and combined about $250 million worth of revenue. Holy crap. What a story, man. I, uh, I, what I love is, is your authenticity, dude. I mean, and, and, and you're right. I do love market source. You already know I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, yeah. the, the organization. That's how I got to know you. I think you guys did great work. You are a key player with some of the most important teams. And that's where you got introduced to what makes sales teams tick. How did that lead you to starting remote and what are you doing with remote now? Great question. Um, as I mentioned, I spent 12 years at the firm. It was a tremendous experience. It was like family, any good organization. It's, it's not work. It's, it's part of who you are and what your life is all about. But after 12 years, I had gotten to a point where I said, you know, I think I've done all I can do. And I woke up on a Friday morning, March 1st, and I said, this is it. So I got out of bed with, with some reservation and I, I went to work. I had a meeting and at 10 o'clock that morning, I resigned. And for the next five days, I was in a period of mourning. I mean, I was crying like a baby. It felt like a death in the family. <laughs> I was, yeah, I'm 6'3", 240, 250, and I was an absolute mess for four or five days, Rob. And, of course, at night I was drinking way too much booze trying to drown the sorrow because I had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't have a resume, never really had one. I, I think they can be discriminatory, but that's a whole other story. Yep. I didn't have nearly enough money lined up in the bank, and I had no job prospects in front of me. So it was a whole new world that I hadn't seen basically since I had went bust 12 years prior. Woo! So it, it was at that point I said, all right, sitting on my couch here in Roswell, which is about a half an hour north of Atlanta, I said, okay, what are you going to do now? And I couldn't get an answer. It was like dead silence. Uh, saying my prayers, talking to friends, nothing was clicking. And about a week after I resigned, I was sitting on my couch and I said, you know, what did you love to do as a younger man? And I flashed back to South Florida when I had a house in Delray. My office was overlooking the pool and palm trees. It was absolute paradise. I'd roll out of bed at nine o'clock. I'd trade until about noon. I'd put my swimming trunks on, grab a drink, float around for two hours then I'd play tennis with my buddy at 4 o'clock and then go out to some swanky restaurant. So I said, how am I going to get back to that type of lifestyle? And it was literally at that moment, Rob, where remote and sales, which has been my entire life, came to be. So I rushed over to my computer, went to register.com, typed in remotesales.com and realized it was 9500 bucks. And when you walk away from six figures, that's a, that's a healthy dose of yeah. pocket change. No doubt. So I mulled it over for a couple of days, and I said, it, it speaks to me. It resonates with me. I called the guy who lives in uh, Miami, Eddie, and he sold me the domain. And within 40, 48 hours, I was incorporated through my accountant. And just uh, real quick, we had originally intended to offer the job board just to sales folks, but I was getting inundated by hundreds of people that were following me on LinkedIn, and they said, you know, hey, I'm in customer service, or my wife is in marketing, or my son's in healthcare and he wants to work remote. Can you help me? And the answer was no. 
And then I realized with my developers on remotesales.com, I was working with Squarespace, great people. Hello, Elizabeth. I said, I got to go bigger. So uh, we decided to isolate on 20 categories of remote work. And that's when I went out and bought another premium domain, remoteonline.com. And uh, the rest, as they say, six months later now is history. Well, let's, that's a great story, man. You got my attention. You got tons of credibility in the sales world. Uh, I relate to you as a founder of a company. Uh, I love your, 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 just your transparency with who you are. Uh, you, this is going to be a fun conversation. I want to get into this concept of remote. We've talked about a lot of topics on the Sales Leadership Podcast, as you know. We've had a lot of great guests, just like yourself. But one of the topics we haven't really dove into is this concept of the remote sales, the remote concept in general. I know you're working with all kinds of remote workers, but you know, we're a sales show, so I, I, I want to kind of have that angle if possible. Can you talk about this phenom that's happening with remote and salespeople? Why is it something that leaders are considering? Why is it leaders, why is it something leaders should consider? And, and, and what does it do? And, and what does it look like when you get it right? Yeah. Um, the younger generation in particular, and it's, it's across the board to the pre-retirees as well, but let's say the millennials and the Gen Xers have basically laid down the gauntlet and said that we want a flexible lifestyle. So if I want at 25 years of age, and I'll be 50 in a few months, but if I'm a young person fresh out of school and I'm checking out the situation in Silicon Valley, I don't want to schlep to work for 90 minutes each way. I want to have the ability to work in a coffee shop. By the way, 40% of freelancers work in a coffee shop. I want to have the ability with companies like Selena, S-E-L-I-N-A, to travel the world and spend three months in Tokyo and another six months in Sydney. I want to experience life because, as you know, that's big with the with the millennials and the Gen Xers. And when you combine that, Rob, with our technology, you know, Zoom, Slack, I could go on and on about the ways FaceTime uh, that we are connected when we're not together in, in a single office. We've got an environment now where, according to recent studies, 43% of the world has some remote component. And Inc. Magazine just put out an article two weeks ago where, the, in their opinion, not mine, their opinion, close to 100% will be remote by 2030 simply because of technology, something called augmented or virtual reality, you know, the whole beam me up Scotty stuff. There just won't be any reason for us to sit in a car or get on planes and trains for two, three hours a day when we can still have the experience of being together by way of technology. So I want to pause on that. Yeah, that's a, first of all, that's a great source. Uh, that, that article sounds like something that we ought to make sure we, we, uh, help make available because that sounds like a pretty close to a hundred percent by 20. Yeah, I posted it. I'll, I posted it with the link two weeks ago. I'll send it to you after the podcast, but. No, they basically break it down into the three big reasons were better pay, better morale and productivity by way of technology. And so, they quote a couple of companies uh, that are 100 percent remote in the Silicon Valley area and absolutely crushing it. We can talk about the reasons why. Uh, yeah. Well, like uh, one of my good friends and I think a friend of yours, Max Altschuler, who was the founder yep. of Sales Hacker and now is at Outreach. He ran Sales Hacker 100% remote, and he's a big believer in that. He's one of the guys that have told me that he thinks that should be part of every sales uh, organization. They should have at least the ability to have that be part of it. You're saying that that's 
more than a phenom, it's where things are going. That's as I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and here's a, another big reason why we are in, as you know, one of the tightest job markets in the history of our country. Certainly in my lifetime, you know, unemployment across the board, no matter what demographic, is three and a half percent or even less. So if you're trying to recruit talent in Austin or Memphis or Miami or Atlanta, where I live. There's just not enough available, so you're really shooting yourself in the foot if you're not willing to expand beyond 20 miles from your audience. And that's one of the major reasons why I think remote work along with Inc. Magazine is going to go global because there's no, there's no um, limitation to where we can go after talent. If someone's qualified and can sell the, the, the crap out of XYZ in New York City and you're based in Phoenix, Arizona – you don't have to have them in the office in order to produce. You've got Slack. You've got Zoom. You've got FaceTime. You've got coffee shops. You've got 10 different ways that they can connect with prospects, either face-to-face, via technology, or over the phone. And, and that really opens the door to help companies run a lot more efficient, more productive operations than ever before. All right. So you, I like what you're saying, and I, and I get what you're saying, and, and I think that it makes sense. I, I, I've seen this trend become more than a trend it's i've seen a lot of people that if they're required to be in an office that's for some people reason enough not to work there um what about talk to me about how you build culture and esprit de corps and all that stuff how uh, do, do you need to be a more mature company where you already have that than a starting company where we that I, i'm sure you can do it but i'm really interested in your take how do you build that cultural I'm part of a team and et cetera like that. How, how do you do that? That's a great question. And, you know, here's a perfect example. I am, along with a guy I worked with for many years, getting ready to open an office in a place called Avalon, which is referred to as the Beverly Hills of Fulton County. It's about 30 minutes north of Atlanta. So even though I'm a huge remote sales slash remote work champion, I am going to have a presence in the Atlanta market where we will ultimately have 15, 20, maybe even more, you know, inside sales reps representing a number of companies around the U.S. and perhaps even the U.K. and Australia. So in addition to that, I'm also a huge fan of part-time remote. A lot of people, you know, talk to me, oh, it'll never work. You're going to lose culture. There's no camaraderie. You've got the problem with loneliness. I said, hey, just because I'm a remote work champion doesn't mean that I don't want to give remote workers an option to travel to an office. So for example, I love the idea of, I want you in the office once a week and I preferably like to have everybody come in on the same day Yeah, and make it more of a a social environment from the standpoint that nobody's going to lock themselves uh, in the office with the door closed. And I envision something kind of like speed dating where, you know, marketing hangs out with finance for 30 minutes and then they go over and, and talk to HR and you put a fresh set of eyes on each department's problems. And then you break bread at noon and maybe you go out for dinner or drinks at, at, at night and you do that once a week. And the other four days, everyone's at home doing their own thing their own way. And as I always say, as long as you're playing by the rules set forth by your employer, and you're producing, you're hitting a number that the two of you agree is fair, then you have every right to work remote. But let's have an option to get together, whether it's once a week, once a month, or even once a quarter when you fly everybody in. And 
Then we use technology, like I mentioned, Slack is all the rage now, and you've got Zoom, FaceTime, et cetera, to make sure that we're connected when we're not together. I dig it. That, that, makes, that makes a ton of sense. So, uh, so you still have to be mindful of that. You just accomplish it a little differently. Yeah, you, you, everyone's got culture, but we're adapting in a world that's going viral from the standpoint of, augmented virtual reality. I mean, if you take a look at some of the things that Facebook and Google are working on, we're just a few short years away, Rob, from you being on the beach in Utah slash California, wherever you happen to be. I'm in a pub in Ireland, and we choose the backdrop of our meeting, and it's literally like Rob is an arm length away. So culture in the next 10, 15, 20 years doesn't require us to be sitting across one another at the same table. We can have augmented virtual reality, paint whatever picture we want, a beach scene, an office scene, a whiteboard scene, and it literally feels like everybody's together in the same room. So let's talk about what makes what makes for a good uh, opportunity for this to succeed. What is the ideal kind of candidate? What's the ideal sales org? Is it any sales org? Are there some things that make some sales teams, you know, a better fit for this? Is, what makes, we got a lot, you, you got a couple thousand sales leaders at any given time listening to what you're saying right now. And yep. I'm trying to put my, myself in their minds. Okay. So who's the best fit? What would you say is like, if you have these things, then you should do it. Uh, any thoughts there? Yeah, the first thing that always comes to my mind is you've got to be a self-starter. I mean, if you are the type of person that needs micromanagement, and believe it or not, there's plenty of people that do. I mean, they get out of bed in the morning, they take a shower, they get in their car, and they expect to have somebody cracking a whip at 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. They need that structure. And for those people, they're going to struggle. And I actually happen to think the stat that everybody keeps hearing of 13% of remote workers describe themselves as lonely are probably not in most cases cut out for remote work or they at least at least need a part-time presence at an office. But when I thrived for seven years out of my house in Florida trading stocks and every other either broker or freelancer that I've had the pleasure of working with over the last 10 or 20 years, they're self-starters. They get their ass out of the bed in the morning and they're excited about what they're doing. They know they've got to make calls, send out emails, get engaged as we do now on LinkedIn. You got to go to events. You got to learn how to text without being obnoxious. And then you got to rinse and repeat in this multi-channel world that we're living in. But I will be, you know, frank with everybody who's listening. There's probably 10 to 15% of you that are not cut out for this. And you, you probably need to be in an office environment. I like that. So what you're saying is it's really more of a the salesperson saying, what's my ideal scenario, not the company saying, are we a good fit for remote sales? Sounds like pretty much any sales org might be able to benefit from it. The question is, are you getting people that are wired in a way that they'll be successful in it? Am I understanding it that way? Yeah. Let's take you, for example, and I don't know the mix of, of those that are remote or internal. Yeah, I think every sales leader, every CEO, every C-suite member needs to have a discussion with the team and say, okay, what percent of our workforce do we want remote? Is it 10%? Is it half? Is it all? If it is all, we need a certain type of candidate in order to grow this business. So let's assume that most companies are probably going to be 50-50 10 years from now. I don't think it's going to be 100%. 
it'll probably be somewhere between half and 75% that are close to full-time remote. But once leadership understands what mix they want to go for, you can't shove a square peg through a round hole. You can't force someone, for example, that hates the cold call, get their ass on the phone and make 200 dials a day. It's not going to work. I've never seen it work. What I'm a huge fan of is are you good with writing? Then you should be doing our email or writing our newsletter. If you're someone who's fearless, who's good on the phone, then get your ass over there and make 50 to 100 calls or use something like Connect and Sell where you can dial a 1,000 times a day. You have to get everybody on the bus and make sure they're sitting in the seat where they really, really want to be. Hmm. Once you have that and everybody from the candidates to the reps to the leadership is on the same page, that's when the magic starts to happen. And I think we're just, you know, bottom of the first, top of the second, it's a learning curve for everybody in 2019. So then let's look at the flip side. What's something that you for sure should make sure, like, so if there's a pretty general way that's more person-specific on what makes it work, are there any mistakes you've seen sales leaders make when they try to do remote where they maybe unawarely fall into a trap? Can you give any pointers to our sales leaders on, hey, if you're going to do this, you know, here are a couple things to watch out for? Yeah, great question. I am not a fan of micromanagement. However, there needs to be structure when it comes to a remote workforce. Whether it's a meeting once a week, every other week, whatever it is, there needs to be a meeting. And that's what you can use something like Zoom for. If you've got a dozen or so teams, team members that are remote, you can get them on a grid and you can go around the room and say, Hey, where are we, where are we at this month? How's, how's the quota? Anybody need help closing the deal, et cetera. So that everybody has some form of structure in their life. The biggest mistake I've seen when, you know, companies abandon remote work, you see, the big boys like IBM and Bank of America and Yahoo, they're calling remote workers back. Well, in my opinion, no offense to anybody who works there, that's an excuse. Those are companies that have been flatlining for years, even decades, and they're pointing the f- finger at remote work. But then when I ask someone who works at IBM remote, how often did you hear from your boss, your sales manager? Never. You mean they never checked in? They never FaceTime? You didn't have any set meeting where you talked on, you know, Monday morning or Friday afternoon to recap the week and see if there were any challenges that you needed help with? No. Well, we kind of had a once a month thing, but with 400 people on the line, I never got a chance to say anything. So the big thing that I've seen in terms of why most fail, there's not enough communication. There's not enough structure from leadership so that the rep understands they're not just on their own. There is a set of rules you have to follow. And as I mentioned before, if you're not going to produce, if you're not hitting your quota or a number that we agree agree is fair, then guess what? You're not working remote. I like it. I like it. That's a really good thing to watch out for. Anything else? That's that's a really good one. You know, there in terms of why I think remote work is the future. In fact, if you go to remotesales.com, you'll see the big caption is remote work is the future. I actually think it's here now because I said 43% of companies have a remote uh, exposure of some sort. Inc. Magazine thinks it's going to be damn near everybody within 30 years. But there's four big things real quick, Rob, that are very simple that everyone's going to understand. Higher pay. My partner, ZipRecruiter, who powers our job board, remoteonline.com, just did a study six months ago, and I can also send everybody the links to that. The average remote worker makes $66,650 a year in the United States. 
That's a full 20 grand higher than a typical office worker for the same job. And the basic reason for that is simple. An employer or a business owner who has a much smaller real estate footprint has got more money to pay their workers. If I don't have to give you a hundred grand a month to house 300 people and I've got a much smaller flex space where we show up once a week or twice tops, then I only have to fork over a quarter or a, a fifth of that then I've got more money to pay my employees. And according to Zip, 20 grand more per year. And the second big reason is we don't have to charge our clients as high a price. Now, I know some businesses are not going to want to hear that, but just take a look at, at Amazon. They took a wrecking ball to retail brick and mortar. Now you can buy just about anything on Amazon Prime for pennies on the dollar. Well, I got news for every B2B company listening. The same thing's about to happen and is happening right now in the B2B space. There's a startup in Silicon Valley in Austin, in Memphis, in Nashville, in Charlotte that's about to eat your lunch because they're going 100% mobile or remote, and they're going to sell virtually the same product with a slightly different nuance. And because you're stuck in the 1950s and you're forcing everybody to schlep to work for 90 minutes a day, you're going to get your ass kicked. They're going to steal your market share in five <laughs> years from now. You might, you might be hanging on by a thread. Yeah. But if you've got a smaller real estate footprint, you're paying your people more money, which means higher morale. You can also afford to charge your customers a little bit less, which means you're going to be a lot more competitive. So those two things of higher pay, lower prices. And last but not least, it's the whole environmental thing. I am not a climate change or a global warming fanatic. You're not going to see me hanging out with the Sierra Club on the left or, you know, breaking bread with the uh, NRA on the right. What I am, is environmentally responsible. And when you pull millions of vehicles off the road, Rob, you reduce, according to uh, a study by the government, I don't always trust what they have to say, but they claim 900 million barrels of oil less per year if just 10% of our workforce went full-time remote. So as we pull vehicles off the road, it eventually lowers emissions, which leads to cleaner air and water. So when I talk to someone, I say, hey, would you like higher pay? Would you like to charge your customers a little less? I know people would like to pay less when it comes to checkout, even at B2B. And would you like to have cleaner air and water for your children and their children? The answer is always yes. And I said, well, guess what? You need to check out remote work. Love it. Let's shift. We've, we've got, we've got good amount of time still to talk about a couple of other things. That, that was an awesome conversation about remote. I really appreciate you bringing that forward. I think that's something that every single one of our leaders, uh, needs to, to be thinking about if they haven't already. And, and, uh, you're going to be someone that can provide a lot of great context on how to get that right and things to consider. So thank you. Yep. Now I want to tap into your, you know, at least the last 12 years. And it's more than that. You've been heavily involved and building and leading high performance sales teams. Fair to say? Yep. I I want to I want to tap into that a little bit. In that long period of time of high success building again remote many times teams away for some of these iconic companies and, and the companies you've worked with and for are, are big boy companies, make no mistake. I'd love to to get a sense of what goes into the Jason uh blueprint for great sales leadership. What are some of the things that you think a sales leader needs to absolutely get right if they want to be a, a high-growth sales leader? I would write these five words down for everybody who's listening. Fail fast and fail forward. 
Fail fast and fail forward, Rob. What I mean by that is this. We had huge customers, HP, IBM, AT&T. Many of them were legacy going back 30 or 40 years. But we also had a lot of startups, the 10 to $15 million company that's on its way to $100 million within, you know, five years or less. Every program, as you know, goes through a ramp. It's usually three or four months once you sign on the dotted line and you start getting to work. Well, we, we adopt much of what you've heard Mark Zuckerberg say, and he's, he's quoted as saying, unless you're breaking stuff, you're not moving fast enough. So we were trying to break as many things as we possibly could, especially in the early days, the first three months, because we had something called a Delta report that not only with the KPIs of, hey, here's how many calls we made, here's how many emails we sent out, here's how many demos we performed, we wanted to be able to come back to those customers, both large and small, in the first 30 to you know 60 to 90 days and say, hey, we tried this, it didn't work. We tried this, it also didn't work. However, we've been doing this over here with a company that's very similar to yours, so we need to make a change and we need to make it right now. Most companies are not adept or comfortable 30 days into a launch of saying, hey, this is not working. We need to make a change and we need to make it right now. So that whole concept of you need to break stuff, you need to fail fast and fail forward is what helped us when I left in March. And it's an organizational thing. We had 10,000 employees. A huge chunk of that were salespeople. We were driving over $7 billion a year, Rob, in revenue for our clients. $7 billion with a B with wow. this whole concept of fail fast, fail forward, make adjustments on the fly, and just get the job done. And I'm proud of the work that our teams did to accomplish that. So fail fast, fail forward. I like it. Uh, it. It means that we don't have analysis paralysis. We're not afraid of something not going the way we want. Um, uh, it, 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 why do people not fail fast and fail forward? That, what stops people from doing that, Jason? Because as I listen to you, it makes total sense. Why do people, why are they afraid of that failure of fast or, 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 or why do they not fail forward? I think it goes back to conditioning when we were young. Um, you know, I, I, I still think the oldies are the goodies. Og Mandino, Zig Ziglar, Dale Carnegie, et cetera. We're all pretty much just regurgitating what they said 50, 60, 100 years ago. Um, you, you have to have this knowing that the first five or six years of your life, whatever exposure you had to your community, your parents, you know, the old saying, I can remember my parents, and they were tremendous, you know, sit down and be quiet. Uh, sit down and shut up. Uh, you, you should, Jason, you should be seen and not heard. You know, every child was told this at a young age. And, you know, Dr. Bruce Lipton, another guy I'm a huge fan of, says 95% of our waking moments today are subconscious programs that we installed when we were five, six, seven years old. So fast forward to when you're trying to run a business or grow a company, it's ingrained in our psyche and perhaps even in our DNA that making mistakes is bad. You know, you shouldn't break stuff. You shouldn't, you shouldn't color outside the lines. There's another one, right? I can remember sitting Rob in kindergarten class and my teacher, Mrs. Danforth, I hope she's still alive. God bless her. She'd come <laughs> by and she'd, she'd see me coloring outside the line and she'd say, Jason, you need to color inside the line. And I would usually comply, but it would absolutely ruin my day because I wanted to color outside the line. So I think the reason why a lot of companies and, and leaders are, you know, have a phobia with fail fast and fail forward, it goes back to our childhood 
when we were conditioned, uh, you know, you need to sit down and, and shut up and play by the rules or there's going to be a problem. So, so this makes me think it's a culture then, this fail fast, fail forward is, because I've said this before, you've heard me say this, uh, people of the world's greatest reflectors, they reflect what they, what they see in their leaders. Yep. Uh, leaders then have to be pretty confident themselves. How does a leader get that, do you think, where they say, guys, you know, team, it's, it's, it's okay to fail. In fact, I want you to fail fast so we can fail forward. Uh, is there something that the leaders need to be thinking about to say, hey, these are things you should be, you should be intentionally doing to make sure that you're creating and fostering and making it okay for people to experiment a little rather than just comply. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm interpreting you wrong, but I love where you're going. How does a leader listening to this show create a culture of fail fast, fail forward? Cause I love that, dude. That's such an awesome question. And I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine over a few drinks. Not even, nice. not even a week ago. And um, we, we were talking about the struggles that I was currently facing. You know, when you walk away, as you know, and you started your company three or four years ago, when you walk away from security and six figures, it, it always ends up being three times as difficult and three times longer to get yourself established and, and get money coming in. And he was asking me, what are you going to do when you start hiring salespeople? How are you going to run the show relative to what you used to do. And I said, you know what I would do now? And I did not do this. I did not have the authority to do this, but I will uh, under my own organization. I think sales leaders like you and I should bring in new folks and say, you know what? I am going to cop you at 100% for the next 30 to 60 days. So don't worry about the quota. We'll have a quote established quota. But even if you fall on your face and you can't get a demo scheduled for 30 days, I'm going to give you 100% of the commission. And I might do it for two months. I guarantee of all the sales leaders right listening right now, not 1% of you are doing this. But the 1% who will, it's kind of like when you're in the mall and you're walking down the mall and they got someone blocking the aisle, right, with the brownie or the, the homemade cookie. Well, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get you hooked on the free stuff yep. so they can drag you into the store. I want to get sales, you know, reps, the newbies, some call them STRs, ADs, BDs. I want to get them hooked on the big money. Here's what it looks like if you hit 100% of quota. But realize, Joey, two months from now, that's going away, and you're going to have to sink or swim on your own. And I've seen it myself with my own two eyes that once you get a young person in particular feeling his or her oats. They know what it's like to make a paycheck so that all their bills and then some are paid. They're going to work like hell that second and third month and beyond to make sure that they can maintain that because taking a, a 30 40% hit uh, when the third month rolls around is going to be devastating. So I want to see leaders not only talk about, hey, I want you to get on the phone and don't worry about getting rejected. I want to see you put your money where your mouth is and say, don't worry about making mistakes for the next two months. I'm going to give you 100% comp during this learning curve. But in that third month, you're on your own. That is one prime example, Rob, that I, like I would it. do now that I that I did not have the power to do before. So this makes me think of another question, and I love this. Is we're making this culture of fail fast, fail forward. Uh, yep. you, just, you, just, you just told me that it sounds like it's individual conversations. Where does the one-on-one fit in your leadership blueprint? How does that fit? And then I'd like to take it one step farther because we talked about remote. 
Is it harder to do one-on-ones with remote? I mean, does it change the one-on-one? Can you talk about where one-on-ones fit and then, and maybe are they different or how do you do them inside a remote environment? Yeah. You got to have both. And, you know, if, if everyone is truly remote, meaning you're in a different time and place, I will admit it's not the same as breaking bread as we did with our buddy Ben a few months ago. Yep. It's not the same. You know, when you're elbow to elbow and you can feel, you know, the laughter and the camaraderie, that's a tremendous experience. When you're FaceTiming or you're over Zoom or Slack or whatever the technology happens to be, there is some difference. So you have to make do with whatever you decide as an organization. I mean, if you're going to go 100% remote, you need to make friends with technology and you got to have those one-on-ones. But one question I love to ask is tell me why you want to work remote. And I'm paying attention to body language. I want to hear the story. I just ask that question. Why do you want to work remote? And most will say, well, I want freedom. I want flexibility. And that, but I, then I keep doing, but why do you want that? So I was at a place called Unity Church in Roswell, uh, Rob, and I met Deepak Chopra. And he was up on stage, and he was talking about his mentor when he was young. used to ask him the question, why? So I like to ask remote workers, why do you want to work remote? And when they give me an answer, I want, you know, hey, I want to be, I want to live a flexible lifestyle. I would say like Deepak's mentor, but why do you want to work a flexible lifestyle? You know, so I can support my family and travel the world. But yeah, why do you want to support your family and travel the world? And Deepak Dave gave this example where his mentor would ask 10 or 15 times. And when you got boxed into the corner and you had no more answer as to why you wanted to do something like remote work, then that right there was your purpose. That was your reason for being as a person, as a human being, and as a remote worker. So I like to drill down on that question when I'm having a one-on-one. That's a great one. That's, that's, that's a really good uh, example of, of how you can connect. I want to, I want to use the last little bit of time we have to kind of maybe go a little less deep, but talk about some things that are more unique to you. I'm a big fan of you, Jason, as you know, um, there's, there's two or three things that I, I really think about you uh, when I think of you. One of them is, uh, and I don't know the right order on these, you've said some things to me in the past that, that I think are good for this show. Um, before the, we got started on this, one of the things that you shared with me was your kind of commonly held wisdom that you think is total crap as it relates to sales. You know, this con- concept of, how important is extroverted versus introverted to be successful in sales? Can you talk about that for just a second? Because I think that's probably cool for our leaders to hear. Yeah, I had put a post on this a couple of weeks ago and where I mentioned 90% of all newly minted billionaires in the last decade are self-proclaimed introverts. Two perfect examples are Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. They are painfully shy people that happen to be among the most richest in the entire world. Previous examples are Warren Buffett. He, he admits to being insanely nervous when he has to, you know, give his annual meeting. Bill Gates is another example, almost reclusive to the point where it's painful to watch him speak, even though they are constantly a source of infinite wisdom. So I saw it with my own two eyes in, in a pit when I first started off as a broker. We had 300 guys mostly, but some gals in a pit. And there was a, there was a guy who sat in front of me. His name was Mark. We were so loud, I sat behind him, that he had his elbows on the desk and both hands covered his ears. And we would get up behind him, and we could not hear the man speak. And we'd tease him, uh, you know, Mark, what the hell are you telling the clients? Because every 10 minutes he'd get up, 
he'd go over to the trading desk and he'd hand in a ticket. And I spent years chasing a guy who I couldn't even hear speak. So we gave him, you know, the nickname E.F. Hutton. When Mark or AKA E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens because he was as introverted and quiet as it gets. It's all about your presence. If you have what I call the it factor, Rob, I don't care if you're loud or I can barely hear you speak. There's just something about you, your aura, your personality that your prospects and your customers can't walk away from. And if you can convey your message in an authentic, uh, transparent way in 2019, then you're going to absolutely crush it. I love it. That's a good one. Let's go to another one. These, these are like my Jasonisms. Like when I do the so what at the end, I got a few Jasonisms, like the fail fast, uh, fail forward. That's a good Jasonism. Uh, the, 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 the idea that, uh, being an extrovert is a bunch of crap. That's a Jasonism. Uh, the last two that I don't, I think I want to say what I think is the most relevant for last. Let's, let's take the second to last be, you know, this concept of the 98% rejection, but the 2% is what's the differentiator. That 2% can make you as successful. I think this is another concept that's good for sales leaders to have to share with their salespeople. Can you talk about that sales is 98% rejection, but that other 2%, that, that's what puts you over the top. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, that was another post to mind. I jokingly quoted myself. and Yeah, no, I love it. It's a Jasonism. It's not a Jasonism. It's a Jasonism. <laughs> I do have to give credit where credit's due. When I first got in the brokerage business, I was uh, in South Florida, 22 years old. And I had this guy. It was a tough, you know, uh, general patent type dude. And uh, right after I passed my Series 7 license, he came over to me, and I was sitting at my desk, scared scared shitless, uh, having to get on the phone for the first time. And he said, Jason, sales is 98% rejection, but the other 2% will make you rich. And he said, and I quote, now get your ass on the, on the phone and make some effing phone calls. <laughs> and I was blessed, Rob. The first dial, I called a guy in Ocala, Florida, who made uh, pools. For a living, the first dial, not the first conversation, he picked up the phone and, and I made $2,000 on a commission. And growing up poor, oldest of five, my dad was a welder. Needless to say, I was hooked. But the truth in that statement is, you know, 10% connect rates when you dial the phone. You're lucky to get 2 or 3% response rates with email. So if you break down your entire day, it really is true true that 98% of the day and the week and the quarter and the year, it's a no. No, I'm not interested. No, I don't have any money. No, I'm not the right person. No, this is not a good time. The question is, can you survive the grind? Are you tough enough to survive the 98% rejection to get to the 2% that's going to make you rich? And by the way, that's not just in money. That's in influence and impact. And as you get older like we are, it's about legacy. What are you going to be remembered by when it's time to throw dirt on you? It's not going to be how much money you made. It's what kind of impression, what kind of impact, what kind of influence did you have on those around you? Man, that is good. I, I, I'm glad we went that one because that sets up this last of the Jasonisms um, that I wanted to talk about today. And, and I am. You can tell I'm a fan of what you do, man, because you've had influence on me. I, I know these Jasonisms. I don't have this one in a good one-liner, but I know you well enough that you probably do. Um, I, you've shared with me that you are on a mission to erase that line between the professional and the personal, and I'm seeing you do it. You've built up such a remarkable following. 
Um, you're, you're so authentic. You're building a great brand. How important is it to erase that line? What does that do for brand building? Can you just talk a little bit about this kind of mission you're on right now and, and, and why it's helpful for a sales leader to consider that? Yes, uh, and I'm glad you ended with this question. Um, just to give everybody a quick backdrop, I've only been heavily engaged on LinkedIn for two years. I started with 1,200 followers two years ago. After I saw the Microsoft acquisition, I said, something's going on here, so I'm going to get in the game. Fast forward two years, uh, and, you know, I probably dedicate two or three hours a day minimum to engaging, sharing content on LinkedIn. I'm now attracting almost a 1,000 followers a week and generating over a million views for the last two months in a row. Yesterday, in fact, I put out a post called, I made a huge mistake 20 years ago. That post in 24 hours has been seen over 700,000 times. Dang. 700,000 times in 24 hours, over 10,000 likes and comments from last I looked before the podcast. Boom. The reason why that is, is, and here's another Jasonism for you. There is enormous profit in loss. There is enormous profit in loss. Love it. When I decided a few months ago, and I can remember talking to my sister, she's a year younger, beautiful uh, soul. I said, sis, I'm erasing the line between my personal and professional life. And she looked at me all confused and she said, what do you mean? And I said, you know what? I'm willing to live in a van down by the river. And for all you Gen, for all you Gen Xers, for all you Gen Xers that don't know what I'm talking about, it's a Chris Farley Saturday Night Live. Yes. You got it. You gotta Google that, watch it on YouTube. I said, I'm willing to live in a van down by the river, which is code for an apartment. I built a, a nice house a couple of years ago. I would walk out of this place in a heartbeat and speak my truth as long as you promise me you're never gonna take away my iPhone. Because if I lose my ability to speak truth, to tell people, hey, I went bankrupt in 2007 or 20 years ago, as I mentioned yesterday, I cashed out on all my stock right before the dot com bubble burst, but then I made a colossal blunder, and I put it down on a house, and six months later, I was 25 grand a month in bills. And in that post, Rob, I talk about flopping around on my Saturnia marble floors. Now, some people have told me, man, I can't believe you go there and tell your prospects and your potential customers that you're flopping around on the floor because you're having a panic attack. And it goes back to my decision. I'm erasing the lines. The same guy that you're talking to over a beer or a glass of wine as we did, and the same guy you're listening to right now, is, is there's no difference. I'm going to tell you I went bankrupt. I'm going to tell you I made a mistake. I'm going to also tell you now I've never said this one on, on a, a podcast. I had a drug problem when I was young. I almost OD'd on ecstasy. Wow. Thankfully, I kicked that problem, and I haven't touched drugs or credit cards, not a single one and never will for 12 years now. But I share stuff like that knowing I might lose money, I might lose a customer or a handful of followers, but if I can save one young person in particular from popping those pills tonight, it's Friday, then I've done my job. And if it means that I'm relegated to give up this swanky house that I live in and go live in a van down by the river for the next 20 or 30 years of my life, then sign me that is how we are ending the main conversation, dude. You are a beast. Jason, that was fantastic. I, I'm still going to take two minutes on the rapid fire that we do with everyone because I love to have the rapid fire with everyone. It almost feels uh, like a mistake after that meaningful. That was that was moving, dude. I am ready to go out and kick some ass right now because of you. Thank you, brother. 
I appreciate it, buddy. It's been a lot of fun. So what do we got for rapid fire? Rapid fire. Ready? Three questions. Yep. Here we go. Biggest leadership challenge you've seen leaders have to face and how do you beat it down? Just what we said earlier, being unwilling to fail fast and fail forward. You got to get comfortable making mistakes or you're never going to make it. Boom. Love it. Number two, when you're interviewing people for AE positions, SDR positions, whatever it is, our, our listeners are asking, what's your favorite interview question? What's your most insightful thing you do in an interview? Something you can share with our listeners on how they can interview better. What scares you the most? Ooh, why is that so important? They, they can take it to a professional or a professional or a personal level, but I want to know, and it's part of a race in the lines. There's things that I'm scared of. I'm definitely scared of, of going back to my old ways of chasing women and wine and and doing things I shouldn't. I'm definitely afraid of, of snakes. If you drop one in the, on the floor here, I'm going right out the window. Don't, don't <laughs> sit there. Don't, don't, don't blow smoke up our ass if you're a C-suite executive and act like everything's fine because it's not. Just be authentic, be real, tell us the truth, and you'll be amazed not only how you're following, but your impact and ultimately your, your business and your paycheck growth. Awesome. Last one. Leaders or readers. It doesn't matter if it's pages you turn, podcasts you listen to, audibles you're hearing. Uh, blogs that you're looking at. Is there, is there something that you would recommend to our listeners that if you want to up your sales leadership game, that they ought to make sure they're putting into their head? I'm going to give you two of those. Okay. Um, I'm a fan of the oldies, but, he, but the goodies, I'm actually rereading Think and Grow Rich from the Napoleon Hill. I probably read it 15 or 20 times, but I just bought a, a nice hardcover edition. Uh, to soak up the, the infinite wisdom there. But I was on a previous podcast with Larry Levine. I don't know if you know Larry. Yep. Larry's fantastic. Selling, Larry's awesome. Selling from the heart. We had a fantastic time as we've had today. But I'm halfway through his book, Selling from the Heart, and I strongly encourage everybody. Larry is another guy that, like ourselves where there's no bullshit. There's no pulling punches. He's, he is who he is, and he encourages you know young people in particular, just tell us how you really feel. You know, warts and all. I can tell you from experience when it comes to social media, people don't care about your success. I pounded my chest in posts and it was like crickets. The minute I talk about, you know, that I had a drug problem as I've done today when I was young or that I went bankrupt or that I blew all my money on a stupid house and a bunch of cars, people say, wow, I've got problems like that too. I relate to Rob or Jason or Larry too. And guess what happens, folks, when they do that? They end up wanting to buy whatever it is that you're selling. Wow. Love it. Love it. Those are good suggestions. Jason, you're awesome. Uh, I, I, I don't know what my favorite part of this thing was, Jason. You just gave us some serious uh, things for leaders to consider. He is the dude that fails fast so he can fail forward. Uh, if you are not following Jason and the Jasonisms, Jason, how do they connect with you? How do they get more of what you're doing at remote? How do they continue the conversations? How do they do that? Yeah. Follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I've reached the 30,000 limits, so I can't connect with, with you guys directly, but follow me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter at Remote Online and Remote Sales. I'll be setting up uh, YouTube and Facebook for both remote sales as well as remoteonline.com. Uh, but that being said, if you have questions, you can send me an email at jason at remote sales or jason at remote online.com. But even if you hit me with an email on LinkedIn, it might take me a week or two to get back to you, but I don't outsource, uh, you know, my engagement. I will respond to you personally. So whatever it takes, I'd like to close out Rob and say, look, this has been a 
true honor and a pleasure. This is only the second podcast I've ever done uh, to be with you. I am a huge fan of Rob Jepson and x So I want to encourage everybody who's listening to me and who follows me on LinkedIn. I believe the stat is only 3% of companies have sales coaching for their leaders. That is a huge problem, but it's also an opportunity. And it's one that Rob and x address every day. So I am strongly encouraged. You cannot have a world-class organization unless your sales leaders, in particular, are being monitored, trained, and inspired to do the right thing. So please reach out to Rob and the folks at Exployant after this podcast. Bam. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate that, bro. That's heartfelt, and I know you, you mean it. So thank you very, very much, brother. Yep. You're very welcome. Hey, thanks for everything, dude. I, 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 I thank you for joining us. You've added a lot to our listeners. You are a guy that I think is absolutely crushing it. I wish you only success. And as I say always, happy selling, my man. Thanks so much, Rob. Take care of yourself. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast, where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? We've had a lot of great sales leaders come on this show, and we've had a really wide variety of, of styles and types and people and personalities that have come on. And none more unique uh, and probably more distinct than what we just had today with Jason McElhone. Uh First, I, I love what he's doing with his, his effort to build up and, and, and make it easier to have remote, remote sales happen in the workplace. There's a lot of great companies that are figuring that out. There's a lot of companies that need to figure that out. It's, I, I agree with Jason. I don't think it's a trend. I think it's a reality. And I think that there's a, a bit of learning curve involved in figuring out how to do it right. And that's why partnering with someone like Jason makes a lot of sense because they've gone through that learning curve and they can, you know, they're really good at helping you fail fast so you can fail forward. Uh, because I think that there's a lot of nuances with it. And I really think it's going to become an important skill set for any sales leader. To say, yeah, I, I'm able to have remote be part of what our bag of tricks is. There's a lot there, and you should go back and listen to what he talks there. But I want to finish this with more of some of the, the lessons that I learned from Jason that I think will help everyone. I really like his Feast of Famine story that he starts with. And he says the biggest catalyst for him in his life was when he was able to look in the mirror and say it was all you. And what I wrote down on that was, the sooner you take ownership of what drives your personal outcomes, the more successful you'll be. And I think lots of times we look out the window uh, when things don't go our way, you know, either on the personal or the professional side. You know, I, there was nothing else I could do. And we try to, we try to, I don't know, justify where we are and, and explain things away. And we only like to look in the mirror when things go right. When things go right, then we're really happy to look in the mirror. And I've found that looking in the mirror when things go wrong is a much more difficult thing to do. But the best ones do. And and I think that's something that we got to do a better job of. And if we're going to be a great sales leader, we should make that part of our DNA. And I'm saying, again, part of every part of our life. There's a number of what I call Jasonisms on there. Um, I think all of them will help every one of us be a better sales leader. The one that he went to as his go-to is fail fast and fail forward. And I think that him having this personal moment where he had to look in the mirror personally and say, it was all me, set him up where he could become a better sales leader because he realized success or failure comes down to how you execute and how you operate, not what circumstances you find yourself surrounded by. 
And we talked a lot about how do you create a DNA where it's not punitive for failing. I think that's a really good question that you should ask yourself. Do I have a DNA that we celebrate the learning curve? We celebrate uh, learning what not to do as we go down the road of what to do. And then we got to keep finding ways to break it. You know, if your company is not adapting, you should be very nervous. There's a lot of studies about this. The adaptability is is a skill that's identified with not just the greatest salespeople, but it's especially associated with the greatest sales leaders. How adaptable are you? Are you able to find the the right way to lead your people and engage your customers and make sure that you're always improving and progressing and changing? And so you really should stop and ask yourself, do we have our DNA fail fast and fail forward? Do we celebrate that fail forward process or do we hold on rigidly and tightly to the past? I find so many leaders say, this has helped me win before, this is what I'm going to do now. And unfortunately, that means that you'll likely get passed up by someone more adaptive and more nimble at some point. Let's make sure we learn from what he said on don't uh, color outside the lines. It's true. When we were kindergartners, we would we would get a bad grade if we went outside the lines. I think we should celebrate finding new ways to do things. And, and I think that's why Jason's the perfect guy to help lead the charge for remote working. It's a new way of looking outside the lines. Some people have been successful at it. Enough people have that people are realizing it is a new normal and it's something we need to do. Now, I want to finish with the way he finished. Um, he talked about sales being 98% of rejection and that 2% is, is what we really need to make sure we're focused on. Uh, I loved his talk about the fact that there's enormous profit and loss. If you can be someone that is able to learn from your lowest moments, and maybe more important, if you can be someone that can help those around you go through those, that's what helps you become more than just a successful leader. That's what makes you legendary in the lives of those around you. And I feel that right now, great leaders are doing exactly what Jason said. They're erasing that line between personal and professional. So many of our leaders get on and talk about that. Yes, we are here for professional reasons, but the people that work there, the more that you tap into their entire sense of self, the more you help them with their whole person and not just their work person, the more impact you'll have with them. And here's what I've learned. If people are living their best lives, then they will do their best work. And if they're doing their best work, they can live their best lives. So it is 100% intertwined. We can't try to separate it. And you need to be that kind of leader that helps people live their best life. And as a result, will do their best work. I want to thank Jason. Go check him out at remote.com, remotesales.com. Um, I, I, I'm a huge fan. If you're not following him, follow him now. He drops great insights all week long, week after week. And, and he does it with a sense of authenticity because he really does want to help every single one of us fail forward. And with that, we'll remind you as always, don't worry, just execute. Because we got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exploit the modern sales leadership platform for Salesforce.com users. You can visit Exvoyant at exvoyant.com.